on this episode of Startup the Science. Authentication, normally they tell you you cannot uh, authenticate. Some people quote Einstein by saying no number of experiments can prove me right, but one experiment can prove me wrong. And therefore you you find one mistake like the titanium oxide and that's it. There are many cases where everything that is being tested shows that there is no anachronism and yet the expert eye, because the expert eye is important also and don't need to neglect that, uh, some of the experts say, no, this is not an authentic and therefore it cannot be accepted in the art world. Hello, Jahan, and welcome to Startup the Science. It's really great to have you and great to talk about this exciting world of art authentication today. So I'd like to ask you to please introduce yourself for our listeners. Who are you and how did you become interested in art authentication? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Jahan Ragai. I am an emeritus professor in chemistry. I'm really a physical chemist and I retired for a good while now, and I've indulged in this particular field. I've always been interested in art, and as a scientist, it was the ideal uh, venue. But how did I become interested in this particular uh, field? As a teacher at the American University in Cairo, where I was a professor of chemistry, uh, there was a core curriculum program whereby it's a course uh, that is for all the students at large. And uh, faculty members uh, are invited to give invited lectures in a topic uh, that may be of interest uh, to the faculty members and possibly to the students as such. And I had been very impressed by a book by uh, Stuart Fleming, which was published in 1976. And the book actually's title was uh, uh, Authentication in Art, uh, the Scientific Detection of Forgery. So I started, in fact, uh, looking at the book and thinking, actually, it would be nice looking at a bit more modern approaches uh, to prepare for the this core curriculum a lecture uh, which uh, would be entitled The Scientific Detection of Forgery in Paintings. And there were about 400 students. The response uh, showed me that the topic was actually an appealing one. And therefore, I decided, because I've always been interested in the interaction between the humanities and the sciences, I decided to create a course at AUC called Chemistry, Art and Archaeology. And it's being taught till now, and it allows, basically, the students to cross disciplines, to overarch the fields of science and art and archaeology. And I was interested also in archaeology because I had been also involved in a project with the Sphinx and the pyramids. And I analyzed some mortars from the the Sphinx and from the heart of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And therefore, it was actually a topic which I had close to my heart. And therefore, that was the alpha, as I call it. But then when I retired uh, in 2015, about six years ago, um, and started living in Cambridge with my husband. Uh, We used to correspond before that. He encouraged me to actually give a lecture at Cambridge on that particular topic. Again, the topic was appealing. And again, I was invited at the Fitzwilliam Museum to give a named lecture as a result of my lecture at the Department of Materials where my husband was working. And gradually, I was asked by people, have you ever written a book? 
And I said, no, I haven't written a book on the topic. And I said to myself, why not? Why not try and look into a bit more as, of course, I had maybe a relatively comparative advantage in being a scientist, so I could understand more or less many of the techniques. And that was really the way it all evolved and led to the two books of The Scientist and The Forger, which complement each other, the two editions. And hopefully another educational book will be in the make soon. So I think that's the basic background. Amazing. I've actually read one of your books. So this is truly an honor to be talking to you today. So before we get into art authentication, I think it would be good to get sort of a background history as to, you've already mentioned it actually in your last answer about forgery, but maybe you can talk about what this problem is and the scale of it and why art authentication is actually necessary these these past years. Yeah, well, yes. Well, the thing is that now, as you probably know, you've heard, for instance, that the Salvador Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci was sold for $450 million, which is an, an realistic price. Uh, if you look at many of the paintings nowadays, whether these uh, belong to the Impressionistic school, uh, the Manets, the Monets, uh, the Van Goghs, etc., they really sell at astronomical prices. And therefore, of course, uh, this uh, would be an ideal possibility for an artist who is maybe disillusioned because the art world does not recognize his or her art, uh, to start trying out uh, forging uh, with the idea of making a lot of money. And this is unfortunately what really is happening now. You're finding uh, the number of forgeries worldwide uh, is unbelievable. In fact, the former Metropolitan uh, Museum curator said that 40% of all arts are fake forged. They're not caught. <laughs> They're not caught. But uh, people, as long as they think they have uh, the authentic uh, work, that's uh, all, all good. Also, of course, with Perestroika and uh, the uh, Russian opening Perestroika, you had a lot of Russian avant-garde uh, paintings uh, which were actually taken out of Russia. And a lot of the Russian oligarchs now wanting to bring back their culture, back to their own country, uh, would uh, basically bring back and because... Uh, whether it's a Kandinsky or a Gregoriev or a Kustotiev or a Malevich, all these avant-garde Russian artists who, which sold for millions were really a great attraction for forgers. Uh, why not? Why not go to go ahead? Apart from that, there's a problem also in the Middle East from where I come, and that is a more serious problem. Because now with the Dubai art fairs, and again, you have an Egyptian painter like Mahmoud Said, his paintings sell for millions of dollars. Uh, you have uh, Sif Wanli, you have uh, the Syrian Luay al-Kayal, all of these again, if copied and not caught, uh, the forgers will make a lot of money. And the problem in the Middle East is that you don't have proper labs like you would have in England, in France, in America. You don't have proper labs to catch the forged artwork. And therefore, forgeries abound everywhere. And the problem is it has become also a way of money laundering. People buy paintings, they put them in vaults, and in a way, it appreciates. They make it a way of uh, keeping money 
in a way that is uh, uh, actually not very ethical, but acceptable and cannot be controlled. And therefore, there is a lot of forgery uh, going on. And at the same time, disillusioned artists uh, who want to prove themselves. So I think there's a big problem nowadays of forgery, which has been recognized very, very tangibly. You have Modigliani forgeries, you have Gauguin forgeries. I can tell you millions of stories on forgeries uh, that are very contemporaneous. Right. So it's it's a huge problem, right? Very it's, it's present nowadays, but I can imagine it's not a new phenomenon. I can imagine it's been happening for quite some time. Um, and Christina made me watch, well, she made me watch, but she recommended that I watch this documentary on Netflix called uh, Made You Look, which I started watching. And one of the things that shocked me was that I think it was the, it was MoMA where um, the, the manager was asked, how many of your paintings are fake? And he said he has no idea. And that's basically how it seems to, to be in many museums in the world. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, what did it mean to do art authentication before scientists got involved? Because when we were doing a bit of research for um, for the podcast, um, I came across some very rudimentary techniques of art authentication, like the touch test. They would literally touch the painting and see is the paint fully dry, <laughs> right? Or, um, well, even before that, I suppose it was the job of the art curator and the, the art historians to to decide whether a painting was really made by who it was supposed to be made by. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. First of all, let me uh, comment on your first comment, comment on what you were saying about museums not being aware of their forgeries. Well, in a way, it's a feather in the cap of the National uh, Museum in London where in 2010, they actually had an exhibit of all the forgeries they had discovered in their own museum. I was amazed. I went and visited it. And uh, there was a lot of honesty there. I was really impressed because it was really discovered through scientific techniques. And uh, therefore, generally, museums do not like to admit that, but the National Gallery in London did admit uh, they, they had fakes. Uh, generally, museums do not like uh, to admit this particular uh, approach. Normally, it, they found it, it is rather maybe not uh, up to their standards uh, to be able to say that they are actually displaying some forgeries. So this is the first part of your question. What was the second part, uh, Antonia? Yeah. <laughs> I tend to I tend to do that to ask three questions in one. And um, my the second part of my question was how was art authentication done before science? Well, the there are two experts, two kinds of experts uh, that uh, we have. There's the connoisseur, right? and uh, there is the art historian. The connoisseur is a kind of expert. Sometimes they're intertwined. They're the same, one and the same. But the connoisseur generally looks at the brushwork of the artist. Is it in keeping uh, uh, of the painting? Is it in keeping with the brushwork of the time? Is it in keeping with the brushwork of the said artist? Uh, is it the same style? Is the composition of the painting uh, that in keeping with that of the purported artist or what have you? And then the art historian comes into play and uh, looks into the 
historical or the conditions under which the painting was produced? Is it in keeping with the chronology? The, I mean, there was, uh, for instance, uh, when they were celebrating the 350th birthday of the, uh, the anniversary of Rembrandt, they were confused because they could not really put to the paintings, there were so many forgeries, uh, in a chronological manner. So does the painting also, is it in keeping with the chronology of the artist? So in the past, it was more the eye of the expert, and they used also something called the Morelian analysis. And the Morelian analysis was a bit like a frigid slip on the part of the artist. You know, we normally have our own language, our own words, which are, characterize us without subconsciously. And Morelian said that the artist, in producing certain details, doesn't really matter to what school uh, or what time in the development of the artist the artist is, but in producing an ear, or in producing a finger, or in producing a mouth, there is a particular certain approach which is really characteristic of the artist uh, and could be identified, and they mapped and they produced formulae and what have you. But of course, Morinian Naris has its merits, uh, although uh, it was found maybe had some shortcomings because people, even assistants in workshops, knew about uh, the different approaches of the artist and therefore would imitate. But in general, if you have very much uh, details that are in keeping with the artist's approach, if you have uh, something that is in keeping with the brushwork and the style, before the introduction of science, these were deemed uh, adequate way of uh, authenticating a particular artwork. That is the art historian and the connoisseur, but also the curator has a role, and that was the provenance, which is a very key element, and which is very generally very difficult to, uh, to assess. Generally, it's a variation of a theme uh, that uh, there's this Italian uh, family uh, undergoing very difficult circumstances or facing difficult uh, uh, circumstances and doesn't want to be uh, named and would like to sell, would like to remain anonymous and would like to sell the painting. And so in the past, it was really the provenance and it was the eye of the expert. Can we, for people who maybe have no idea what that is, can we define provenance? For me, it was a relatively new word when I first, uh, when I first heard it in this documentary. What is provenance? Provenance is really tracing a history of uh, ownership of the painting way back to the artist uh, that uh, uh, painted it. This is generally quite difficult to achieve. And uh, sometimes, for instance, uh, there are stories in order to convince people of the provenance. Um, there is this famous story of Beltrachi, and uh, who's a German uh, forger who made the story of an almost quasi Perfect provenance convinced even one of the best uh, experts of the time. So forgers are generally quite ingenious, not only at producing a perfect uh, scientific today <laughs> forgery, and therefore uh, they try to avoid all pitfalls, but also to tr they try and keep uh, being keeping with the approach of the artist, uh, uh, the style of the artist, the brushwork, uh, um, the craquelure on the surface and what have you. I could actually give you a bit more details as we go along on the different approaches in authentication. So I guess this is the appropriate time to bring up the science. Before I move into that, I want to tell you one thing, and that is generally it's much easier to detect a forgery than to authenticate a painting. 
because it's enough that you find one element that is anachronistic that does not belong to the artist's reservoir to to be able to say ah and this uh, you know this is a retouche or something that has been added later on this is a forgery but to authenticate i will talk to you to, about it you can authenticate but i will tell you under what circumstances that would be wonderful so yes in your book and I don't know why this part of the book really sticks out in my mind, but before you get into the tools and techniques, you first introduce the layers of a painting. Everything from the back of the painting to the varnish and all the layers in between. So let us start from the beginning. Now, a painting has normally the surface. You have the, the canvas. And beyond the canvas, you have, of course, the underground, and then you have the layers of the paint, and then you have the varnish, and you have also the frame, if uh, it is a painting that is particularly framed. And so what the scientist does initially, and maybe the curator initially in a non-scientific manner, looks at the surface. And the surface normally for an old painting would have cracks, craquelure, what we call cracks. And the pigment uh, in general, the pigments, uh, when they dry, they shrink, and when they shrink, uh, they produce uh, a maze of cracks uh, that have a certain pattern. And uh, if uh, the craquelure is genuine, it's quite deep, uh, and this can be seen either by the naked eye, by a magnifying glass, or preferably by a microscope. So the first thing the forger does uh, is uh, sometimes uh, to imitate craquelure, either by painting, on top of the painting, or by uh, uh, bringing a very thin pin and trying to make, uh, and that is a very laborious, or like the famous uh, forger Van Nigren, uh, to invent a technique, and I could explain the technique uh, if you want, but uh, I mean, it might take a bit of time, but anyway, if we have time, I will, and uh, to produce a perfect calculator that looks absolutely old. So that's the first thing. The first thing, uh, the uh, scientists, uh, and in conjunction here with the curator, is to look at the cracks uh, and to see if they're genuine or not. The second thing is also to look at the brushwork. Now, the best way a scientist, uh, and I'm talking about the simple techniques, but they become more, much more sophisticated as we go along and it becomes more difficult. But the simple technique, number one, is to identify the craquelure, maybe with a microscope, maybe with a stereo microscope, which is a bit more sophisticated, and uh, using what we call raking light also. Raking light is light that comes at an angle, and you're looking and the, the brushwork becomes very prominent and very visible. And therefore, again, the expert eye can make an assessment of whether that is in keeping or not with that of the artist. So that is looking at the surface. But apart from that, sometimes you see there's a, an authentic painting, but a, a blue has faded and a restorer comes and paints over it with a blue. And that's what we call a retouch or a retouche. All right? And this retouch generally could be identified by many ways. The first very simple way is to impinge on it some ultraviolet light. And if the painting is old, it would actually give off a much uh, better radiation in the visible region uh, than if it were uh, a uh, recent retouch. The reason that that does not fluoresce at all, whereas an old painting would fluoresce and generally in the visible region. And so you can see the difference there and identify what is a retouch. But this is a very simple way because now forger also get away 
uh, with this particular uh, uh, technique and we'll see how. So that's the surface. But not only that, uh, now, apart from the surface, let's go to the other end and then we'll go to the in between the layers. The lower is the underground or the under drawing is extremely important because, and here we have different techniques. Initially, you had X-ray radiography, which is like the X-ray we have. And normally, you look at the underdrawing and you see what was, is there an underdrawing? Uh, there, is there a change of mind on the part of the artist? Is there a hand which was higher and then changed in the final? And that would indicate uh, what we call pentimenti, and maybe then that it is, might be authentic. Another technique is what we call infrared reflectography, where infrared light falls. If the background is made out of graphite or charcoal, you get a beautiful picture and you can get to know exactly the initial uh, intention of the artist. Now, suppose you come and you look at an under, uh, and you find that there is a painting belonging uh, to an artist uh, that died after the purported artist, then that's a forgery. Suppose there is an anachronism of style. Suppose you have a Picasso, you know, Picasso had his blue period, his pink period, and then had this, the cubist. Suppose you, uh, you have a cubist painting, uh, you have a blue period, and then under it you have, uh, as an underdrawing, a cubist, then it is a forgery. And so from under, you can basically, initially, and that's an easy way, you can find a forgery or not. You can find maybe unusual drawings that are not characteristic of the, uh, the artist per se, uh, like one of the examples, uh, uh, which uh, was the Madonna and Child with an Angel, where uh, the creature was drawn uh, on the surface, uh, and uh, where the underdrawing was done in much more detail and with graphite, which did not belong at the time to Francis, uh, Francisco Francia, uh, the purported artist at the time. So that's the underlayer, but we get more sophisticated techniques now for the underlayer, and uh, these sometimes have been used for authentication. And then there's the body of the painting. And the body are the paint layers, as you say. And here you normally make a cross section. You look at the different paint layers and with various techniques, whether it's scanning electron microscopy in conjunction with what we call EDX, whether it's a very simple technique of X-ray fluorescence, which gives us the elements and therefore you can deduce the pigment, uh, you can look at the various layers, and uh, if you happen to find in an underlayer a pigment and identify that did not belong uh, to the time of the life of the artist, uh, it is actually a forgery. So it's basically the surface, the body, and the underground. There are various, there's a wide spectrum of techniques uh, that are actually quite described uh, in both books, the second edition that you have and the first one and uh, which are tools uh, uh, for the artist. Of course, and then there's the canvas. You can date the canvas with carbon-14 dating. You can date uh, the frame, either with carbon-14 dating or uh, with a technique called dendrochronology. So there is a wide spectrum of techniques, uh, and I would be more than happy because I can't really explain or describe all of them, but if you would like me to give you one or two simple examples, uh, I could go ahead and give you one or two. Yeah, if you'd like to give us some examples, that'd be perfect. The simple approaches would be either uh, to identify the pigments that were used. And uh, the conventional technique is what we call X-ray fluorescence, 
that museums generally use. They have a portable even. They identify an element, if they, for instance, cadmium. And if they know that the yellow pigment is cadmium sulfide, therefore, if the yellow indicates cadmium, therefore, the pigment was cadmium sulfide. X-ray fluorescence is very good, but it just gives us uh, the elements that uh, would actually indicate the pigments. But you have organic pigments nowadays, modern pigments. You have binders. And these normally organic materials are carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur. If you identify these elements with X-ray fluorescence, it is not really useful. And therefore, what uh, one resorts to are either infrared spectroscopy or Fourier infrared spectroscopy, which really identifies the molecule as a whole. You have a spectrum and you compare it with known. Or Raman, and Raman is very much in use now, especially Raman microscopy, because it's almost non-destructive. Uh, and it can give you a very good idea of the pigments. For instance, uh, phthalocyanin, which is a blue pigment, which is an organic pigment. However, uh, X-ray fluorescence would not be able, uh, if you have copper phthalocyanin, to identify copper, but you wouldn't know that you have the phthalocyanin. So you need a technique that gives you the whole. Um, then we have much more sophisticated techniques, and that is normally used uh, and has been used uh, to either authenticate or to find a forgery, which is really difficult uh, uh, to find. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. Before we get to the rest of it, though, we'd like to take a moment to tell you about one of our AdmaCom sponsors. AdmaCom stands for the Advanced Materials Competition, and it's our two-week accelerator program for startups in advanced materials. The Investionsbank Berlin, or the IBB, is the business development bank of the Federal Land of Berlin and a proud sponsor of AdmaCom. With its business support, it actively contributes towards developing Berlin as a hub for business and industry. Whether you're a large company, SME, startup, or even a university or research institution, the IBB hosts a variety of programs and initiatives that support you. All you need to do is be located here in Berlin. Learn more about the IBB and their services by visiting their website at www.ibb.de. There are all these different techniques that can be employed now to, to figure out whether a painting is authentic or not. Um, and it seems like, you know, things have changed from the times when we would rely on very subjective opinions of art experts to nowadays when we can employ chemists to, to figure this out. Can you give us an example of uh, some famous paintings that were, or some famous forgeries that were detected using these techniques? So many forgeries, uh, many techniques also. <laughs> One of them uh, is basically, since we are, you're in Germany now, is the one, and you probably heard of, famous Beltrachi forger. And Beltrachi, um, quite an amazing, first of all, he concocted the perfect provenance. Perfect. So nobody could, uh, why? Because he invented uh, a Jaeger collection. He said uh, that in 1992, uh, Jaeger died. He had his collection and he had bought it uh, in 1933 from this Albrecht Fleischmann who was uh, escaping from the Nazis. And uh, uh, he bought it all. And uh, what made the thing very, very credible was that the wife of Beltrachi and her sister were the grandchildren of this Jaeger. And they claimed that it is Jaeger collection belonged to the grandchildren. 
were inherited by his wife. And he even, they even concocted a picture with the wife dressed in old clothes and uh, with the pictures of their forgeries in the back. So that was the alpha of convincing. And he did a wide spectrum of forgeries without being caught because he was so clever and he knew exactly how he prepared his forgeries, as I would say, with Mozartian perfection. But then there is always a moment where a mistake is being made. And he had done a campaign donk. I think it was called the Red Picture with Horses. And this particular painting, he knew the palette of Campendonk perfectly. He knew everything about Campendonk. He had visited the museum where he displayed, he looked, and he said, I penetrate the soul of the artist, and therefore I cannot make any mistake. And he bought for the white pigment, the zinc oxide, which was the pigment that Campendonk used. But he didn't know that this zinc oxide was contaminated with some titanium dioxide. And that was in an underlayer, the various layers, because you make a cross section and you look at the various layers, in an underlayer with EDX and scanning electron microscopy. EDX is like X-ray fluorescence, but it's a bit more refined. A scientist by the name of Nikola Istov, who is a very good technical art historian in London, he actually identified titanium dioxide as an impurity. And that opened, of course, uh, Pandora's box. Uh, and Beltrachi was finally caught. And he had to admit to 14 forgeries. And uh, the technique which was used in that case was a sophisticated, relatively sophisticated technique of looking at the cross-section, looking at an underlayer, and using uh, scanning electron microscopy in conjunction with EDX, which is a kind of X-ray fluorescence, uh, to identify the titanium dioxide. So he was caught, uh, and uh, he only got uh, six years, and he went out uh, from the courtroom uh, waltzing. He was so happy. <laughs> so this is one example. I could give you many examples uh, of things which were um, measured uh, even with more sophisticated techniques, uh, like, uh, for instance, uh, I think uh, the Guggenheim Museum had a Fernand Léger, a painting by Fernand Léger, and they were not sure it was authentic or not. And then finally, with a technique called uh, accelerator mass spectroscopy, they managed uh, to use uh, the carbon-14, the bomb peak effect, as we call it, and uh, to detect uh, that uh, actually it was a forgery. So you can have a lot of techniques, and you can authenticate, but the authentication comes uh, in a different way. You want to tell us a little bit about that? How does authentication happen? Authentication, normally they tell you you cannot uh, authenticate because uh, they tell you that some people quote Einstein by saying no number of experiments can prove me right, but one experiment can prove me wrong. And therefore you, can, you find one mistake like the titanium oxide and that's it. But how can you, you can, there are many cases where everything that is being tested shows that there is no anachronism. And yet the expert eye, because the expert eye is important also, and don't need to neglect that, uh, some of the experts say, no, this is not an authentic and therefore it cannot be accepted in the art world. However, if there is a conversion of uh, uh, art historical records or uh, uh, expert records and uh, scientific detection, then uh, maybe an authentication can be produced. And I'll give you the example. There was uh, a painting by Van Gogh, Vase de Fleur, which was deemed to be, uh, you know, not a Van Gogh because it was too large, 
too many flowers. The signature was in a place where Van Gogh doesn't normally sign his name. And therefore it was deemed to be a forgery and not uh, an original Van Gogh. Now here is where art historical evidence in conjunction with science can finally lead to an authentication. And the art historical evidence is a group of letters. You know, Van Gogh, when he was in exile at art, used to write a large number. He wrote more than 900 letters. And of these, about 650 he wrote to his brother, Theo. And uh, when Theo died, his wife initially then gathered and, uh, and wrote, uh, gathered them, uh, gathered them together in Dutch. And then these were translated later on into English. And uh, there was uh, a reference uh, to uh, two wrestlers uh, who were wrestling together. And uh, Van Gogh was telling his brother, today I painted two wrestlers uh, and uh, the reference was made in the letter. Now, this vase de fleur I just mentioned uh, was looked upon by infrared reflectography, which I initially mentioned, X-ray radiography, which was originally mentioned, these two techniques, which are normally the routine techniques of the scientist, uh, did not give any kind of clue. The underdrawings were too blurred. But then time passes and uh, a sophisticated technique uh, of X-ray radiography, which is known as synchrotron X-ray radiography, where X-rays are produced on a synchrotron. They produce, a, you have electrons moving in extremely high speeds under the effect of magnetic fields and they produce these X-rays. And there, if uh, X-ray radiography is done with these synchrotron X-rays, it can give very clear underdrawings. So a few years back, decided uh, it was decided to actually look a bit more at uh, this particular painting, uh, which was deemed not to be by Van Gogh. And lo and behold, under it were the two wrestlers, uh, which were absolutely clear. And therefore, this technique, which was an advanced technique of X-ray radiography, which is synchrotron X-ray radiography, authenticated the painting. I can give you other examples if you want and go on, but in general, authentication is much more, much more difficult uh, than, of course, forgery detection. We're actually coming to the end of the episode now, and I feel like I've learned so much from spending such a short time with you here. Throughout this conversation, I noticed that you mentioned so many stakeholders. There are the curators, the art historians, connoisseurs, museums, galleries, and of course, the scientist. I'm sure there are many more that I missed, but I guess my question is about the future. All of these stakeholders are affected by or part of the authentication process. So what's next? What does the future look like for them? That's a very good point. Uh, it's very difficult for me to say what the future will be like. <laughs> what I can say is what I hope it will be like. <laughs> First of all, we always hope uh, that... Uh, there needs to be a cross-disciplinary narrative uh, that uh, um, scientists uh, collaborate uh, with art historians, 
collaborate uh, with experts uh, and they co-join their effort in an authentication or a forgery detection and each one brings in his or her expertise. So this is uh, one hopeful venue which is already more or less uh, identified and uh, hopefully it'll become stronger and stronger in the future. The second thing, uh, hopefully, is uh, that there needs to be more educational endeavors. There are many institutions that do have master's degree in technical art history, but even at the undergraduate level, we hope uh, that there, this effort uh, would be to produce more technical art historians so that the world, uh, as much as you have uh, forgers, you have also sometimes uh, inauthentic forensic scientists for nice kickbacks they're ready to authenticate a painting and that's a kind another kind of an ethical aspect of the art world when i was last time at the hague a also an approach called blockchain technology uh, was put forward whereby the anonymity of the purchaser and so on is kept but the provenance can be traced. And through this particular technology, if it is properly applied for all the modern great artists that prevail nowadays, you can really trace the whereabouts of the paintings and therefore it becomes a much easier way of at least tracing the provenance in a much more scientific manner. This also we hope will be the case in the future. DNA fingerprinting, it might be the case if it's done properly, uh, could be also one particular venue. But the main, main thing basically is uh, the sharing of knowledge also. That there needs to be a, uh, for instance, if, if you look at the National Gallery in London, they have analyzed a large number through the, through the centuries of their paintings. And they have a database. And therefore you can get to know, for instance, what did this particular artist, what does the Soroya used as a white pigment? If a Soroya always used zinc and never used lead, or use zinc in small proportions, but not in large proportions, therefore an internal database can be made available across boards so that people can really have it uh, be it available and therefore the authentication process becomes much easier. This is maybe a utopia, this last, uh, because people generally are a bit more, uh, um, you know, they like to have what they have and keep what they have. Uh, if they have a data, they have a set of pigments uh, which were used uh, by, uh, uh, which identified by a particular painter. All this particular knowledge, uh, if the lab is an established lab, there will be maybe a bit of reluctance to share it with another lab. But let us hope that a world uh, would become more of a world where ethics prevail over self-interest and where really, for the good of humanity, let's say, the approach is more of an ethical one and a more shared one where people share responsibilities to a certain extent. I might be talking in terms of idealized possibilities, but what I think also needs to be done, and I feel quite strongly about it, and that is, I've noticed, Biltrachi got six years. He was released after because it's the first time after three or four years. 
he became a hero, a kind of a folk hero. Comes out, he's very happy of his work. He is now painting genuine Beltrachis. People buy because Van Nigren's forgery, the famous uh, forger of Vermeer's uh, during the Second World War, and that's a fantastic story. He also became kind of a folk uh, hero and uh, Van Nigren forgeries cost a fortune. He was given only one year of one year sentence that he didn't even fulfill. And that was because he was assumed to have fooled the Nazis. But in general, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Tom Mayat, all of these forgers uh, are given a short sentence and therefore there's an encouragement there. Why not sacrifice two to three years of my life, come out as a hero, forge, paint, and make a lot of money as a result. So there needs, I think, in my perception, needs to be much stricter ways of addressing forgers, much stronger penalties to discourage forgery. And uh, therefore, I think it would be a safer world and the world where when you buy a painting, you pay hundreds of uh, thousands of dollars, if not millions, uh, you feel that you have done uh, a safe <laughs> acquisition and uh, that you have not been fooled. That sounds like a better world. And it is interesting to see, uh, as you were saying, that the punishments for these kind of crimes, because they are crimes, are uh, not really proportional to maybe the damage they're doing. I know it's the same in the book world where um, there were quite a few book heists of uh, famous collectors stealing millions and millions worth of first editions of very famous books. And they got a couple of years of home arrest. Um, it doesn't seem like it was that big of a deal. Maybe these crimes are put into a category of their own, like noble crimes rather than actual crimes. <laughs> let's hope, let's hope. But it's still a good world. It's still full of beautiful pieces that we admire. I, I adore Leonardo, Michelangelo, Renoir's. I mean, we're surrounded with so much beauty that we're very fortunate, actually, in this world. Thank you so much for, for being with us today, for telling us how chemistry is getting involved in the art world and how um, such interesting methods like spectroscopy methods are being used for art authentication. Um, it was a pleasure to have you, and hopefully we'll approach this topic more in the future and you can join us again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Startup the Science. If you'd like to learn more about our podcast, head to www.enum.berlin slash startupthescience. You can also follow us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to leave us a message or ask us or our guests any questions, send us a DM or leave us a message on our website. We would love to hear from you. Stay tuned for our next episode. Coming soon.